The Splendid Table is supported by Sitka Salmon Shares. Sitka Salmon Shares is a community-supported fishery delivering traceable, wild-caught Alaskan seafood since 2011. As a member, you receive seafood caught by small boat fishermen in season with respect for the ocean. It's fish with fresh-from-the-ocean flavor and free no-contact delivery. Meet their fleet, access recipes, and shop shares at sitkasalmonshares.com. Use code SPLENDID for $25 off your first order. And by Homemade, a new podcast from the publishers of All Recipes. Marty Duncan, author, home cook, and Next Food Network star finalist, has a new podcast that celebrates cooking at home. It's called Homemade, and it's from the publishers of All Recipes. Guests include Guy Fieri, Carla Hall, and Rachel Ray, who join Marty to talk about the memories and traditions behind their favorite foods. Listen to Homemade on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM American Public Media, a show for curious cooks and eaters. This week, we've been having beans and squash in the garden. And they're the best I've ever tasted. And I said to my sister, you know, in the city you put a lot of spices and herbs on food, but you really don't need it. I don't think people even realize that. Food is so good out here. You don't need all that. That's Edna Lewis, talking about the vegetables that her family grew in rural Virginia. And, you know, she was always all about the goodness of country life, even though she moved away from the country as a teenager. She went to New York City, hung out with artists, made dresses for Marilyn Monroe, and became a chef. She cooked for regulars like Truman Capote and William Faulkner and Eleanor Roosevelt, and then, after a bad slip broke her leg, she became a writer. A writer who totally remade the image of Southern food in America. Her most famous book, The Taste of Country Cooking, came out in 1976, deep in the moment when the rest of America thought Southern food was just all fried chicken and greasy greens. And all of a sudden, here was this book about the South, but that talked about the good flavor of stewed quinces in winter, or stuffing squab for honored elders, or making biscuits with homemade baking powder so the flavor is pure butter and wheat, not metallic and chemical. It's a book about looking at a stream and seeing the water tug at the leaves of wild greens, about the community rituals of hog slaughter, and how even the seasons have their own seasons, how the absolute best fried chicken is made once a year, when the chickens are just fat enough when spring becomes summer. It's a book that's about paying attention and eating close to the earth, and it inspired Alice Waters, you know, the queen of eating local, who actually once told me that she didn't really know that America had a cuisine to be proud of until she read Edna Lewis. So Miss Lewis helped change the image of Southern food, helped launch the farm-to-table movement, and she did it by writing about a tiny place in central Virginia called Freetown. As she wrote, it wasn't really a town. It was just a little village built by her grandparents as soon as they came out of slavery. It was a place where they lived full of grace and good food. So think about that. Her book came out in the same year as Roots by Alex Haley. And while that book was making America look at the pain of slavery, Miss Lewis's writing said, see what we made for ourselves. Miss Lewis died in 2006. 
but her life and her work still inspire us. So we dedicate this hour to her, talking to people who were inspired by her, people who cooked with her, people who lived with her. Edna Lewis was a chef, an author, a farmer, an activist, but first we'll start just with her as a person. And for that, we're joined by her niece, Nina Williams Mabenge. Hey, Nina, it's great to have you. How are you? This is this is fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and I am so happy to get to talk with you about your aunt. So, mm-hmm. you know, she's this legendary figure for so many of us mm-hmm. in the food world. But how do you remember her as your aunt? What do you think of when you think of her? <laughs> oh, boy, I remember spending a lot of time with Aunt Edna. Uh, she was my mother's older sister. Uh, she was very funny. Uh, her and my mom together were always laughing and joking about something. Oh, God, I remember um, her first cookbook before the Taste of Country Cooking, the Edna Lewis cookbook. Mm-hmm. She wrote with Evangeline Peterson, yeah. who was a woman that she cooked for. And, oh, my God, they were working on the book. And I'd, I'd be tagging along with Aunt Edna. She always had me going somewhere because my mom was working two or three jobs. And, and Edna was doing this catering, so I went to some of these things with her. But I remember she and Evangeline would get together, and they I don't know, I don't remember they were drinking wine or Jack Daniels. <laughs> But they would just start giggling. And both of their voices would get higher and higher each glass. And, of course, I'm like 11 or 12 going, oh, my God, what are they talking about? (laughs) (laughs) But I just have never forgotten the sounds of their laughter just tinkling in their voices. Oh, it would go on and on, you know. And and then she was very shy. So when you'd see her out, you know, at these events or, you know, cooking or something, she, you know, it it was hard for her to, you know, necessarily get her voice going. Mm. But certainly at home. You know, we watch TV, you know. She loved watching the Kentucky Derby. We watched that, all three of the races. She was a news hound, you know, meet the press, all the news programs. In my family to this day, everything stops while that stuff is on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, she was just, she was interested in everything I was doing. She was interested in young people, you know, my schooling. And I remember her laughter a lot. And when the sisters would get together, Ruth and Jenny and Naomi and Aunt Edna, they, uh, they would just carry on. Mm-hmm. One of my fondest memories is being in Virginia at Aunt Jen's house, who lived down in the country near Freetown. Yeah. And her and Aunt Edna and I, we'd go picking blackberries. And I'd trail along behind them, and they were gossiping and <laughs> talking about the old folks. I just loved being with them. What was Freetown like when you went there? Well, by that time, there were no longer any houses there. Uh, it was a cattle field, really. My uncle, their brother, had his cattle there. Mm. So I, I just remember Aunt Edna always talking about Freetown and the people of Freetown and how much that meant to her and how she always felt their, you know, their presence. Mm. Aunt Edna's grandparents had been born in slavery and they lived till their 90s. Right. So she was, I think, 10, 12 years old before they passed away. And, they, and one of those grandparents taught her to cook. So she talked a lot about what life was like for them, you know, in the South, in a... Um, you know, a town of people that were formerly in slavery. That was amazing to me that I'm still alive, and I, you know, was raised by someone who was raised by a former slave. So Freetown was the, you know, the first line of Miss Lewis's book is, I grew up in Freetown, it wasn't really a town. And it was this little community mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. her grandparents and mm-hmm. other friends and family had founded, like a small mm-hmm. village, right? Yes, I was just going to say, it's just amazing to me that we're, you know, 20, 2018, we're talking about Freetown. And I just think those families in there, they, they would just be amazed that Anna wrote about them in her book and people that cook and are into American cooking or Southern cooking are talking about Freetown, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when she wrote that book, she wrote it longhand 
sort of yeah. famously she had these yellow legal pads. Yeah, and she yeah wrote I remember it those. Yeah, 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 yep. <laughs> but you actually helped her with it, right? How'd you get pressed into service? I was about 12. I think I had a typing class in seventh grade or something. And I had my first typewriter. And she uh-huh. had me type the manuscript because her writing was kind of chicken scratch. <laughs> So it was hard to read. <laughs> and I remember just, you know, days and days typing that up. And I was always like, you know, I was, you know, correcting her grammar. And she had these long lists, you know, peas and watercress and when she was describing everything. And I'm like, and Andy, you've got too many words in this one sentence. The whole page is one sentence. You can't do that. And I was trying to break it up for her, you know. So, so I re- some of those things I remember. I remember because I just typed them over and over again. And I, I tell you, I miss that. I'd give anything to see her chicken scratch again. <laughs> but, ne- you know, never knowing that, it, you know, she'd have such an influence on uh, cooking and all this farm-to-table movement and all that. Did you get a sense of what her, like, what she wanted to do with the book? Like, what was she hoping for? Like, I, I read it, I think a lot of people read it, not just as a cookbook, but, you know, as literature that tells the story of this community, Freetown, and tells the way they lived. And what motivated her when she was writing it? I really think, I mean, she didn't necessarily talk about that to me, but I got okay. the sense of the way that she talks about the, the people of Freetown. The people of Freetown motivated her. I got the sense that she really sensed the presence of um, all of her ancestors, mm. you know, watching her and following her and seeing what she was doing. I, I think that that really drove her. I think she never forgot that. I mean, she never forgot how food tasted when she grew up, you know, fresh out of the fields. She never forgot walking along behind her father as he plowed the fields, getting ready to plant. Uh, you know, and behind her mother um, and, and all the things that happened, all the celebrations they had. And I think that's why she wrote the book the way that she did. You know, she wrote it according to the seasons mm. and the things that people would do. And, you know, one thing about her long lists of things in her book, you know, you, she painted a picture, I think, of what she remembered and what she saw as a child. I remember, I remember when I was researching a little bit about her life, mm-hmm. it was so amazing to me that, you know, she wrote this incredible classic that's almost like a journal of life and what living was like in this community of Freetown. Right. And it's, like you said, it's such detail. And then you realize she moved away when she was 15, 16 years mm-hmm, old. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, all that stuff was so implanted yes, in her memory. Yes, But I think that drove her. I mean, Edna was always, you know, very politically astute. She was always, you know, she was involved in all kinds of movements, definitely the civil rights movement. And mm-hmm, I think, mm-hmm. again, that drove her. But, you know, I think she had the, the artistic side was her cooking. And that mm. drove her. And I don't know that she really, you know, necessarily was thinking, I'm going to write this cookbook about our lifestyle and I'm going to make a statement. I think that that was just always in her. The cooking was such an important uh, part of her life. But, you know, the politics and whatnot was too. And I think that I guess she ended up making a statement because she was, you know, talking about the lives of these people that had been through so much mm-hmm. and really struggled to make a decent, normal life for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> but that it was... Not just we scratched and clawed our way to survival. It was, oh yeah, no, no, no. They made they made it, they made it beautiful. I'm sure it was tough, yeah. and probably because she was so young, you know. Even as she listened to her grandparents, you know, as, as a young person, they they probably buried as much of that as they could. She probably saw she would have seen the end result of people coming out of slavery and surviving and building this little town. And it just, it's just a testament to people putting things behind them mm-hmm. and just going forward and looking forward. And I just, I just think that's, I think it's so amazing. And I think there's, there's lessons there. There must be thousands of free towns. And I think they have lessons for us today. And, you know, they will into the future for how people can come through, you know, God knows what 
right. and still um, make a make a life and survive and reach out and touch people. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nina. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Great talking to you too. <laughs> Nina Williams-Mabenge runs the Child Welfare Project at the National Conference of State Legislatures and, of course, is the niece of Edna Lewis. And her talking about picking berries with her aunts in Freetown made us think of this great, simple recipe from Miss Lewis for sugared raspberries. It's like a fresh, raw jam, and you can find that recipe at SplendidTable.org. Coming up, we'll talk with Sarah Franklin, who put together a brilliant book of essays on Miss Edna. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM, American Public Media. Our show is supported by Ritual. Sure, you want to keep your body healthy, but even eating kale salads and drinking green smoothies isn't enough to get all the essential nutrients you need on a daily basis. So check out Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual Essential for Women is a clean, daily multivitamin designed to help fill nutrient gaps in your diet. Ritual multivitamins are vegan-friendly, gluten-free, and non-GMO, and they also have a delayed-release capsule. It's designed to be gentle on you, and you can take them on an empty stomach. And the best part is, Ritual is a monthly subscription that's delivered straight to your door, and it only costs a dollar a day. Let Ritual be one small constant among countless changes to daily life. Better health doesn't happen overnight, and right now Ritual is offering our listeners 10% off during your first three months. Fill the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step to help support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit Ritual.com Splendid to start your ritual today. That's 10% off your first three months at Ritual.com Splendid. And by Snake River Farms. Santa Maria-style barbecue is a classic of California cooking. It's hot buttered French bread, piquito beans, salsa, and a whole grilled tri-tip steak. And if you want to throw a Santa Maria barbecue yourself, do it with a Snake River Farms American Wagyu tri-tip. At two and a half pounds, it's big enough to feed a family, but still a fun size to cook. You can get a great charred crust in the grill and then cook it gently on indirect heat until it's just how you want it. Like all their American Wagyu beef, Snake River Farms tri-tip has crazy marbling. It's well above USDA Prime, and it's a cross of purebred Japanese Wagyu and quality American cattle breeds. They also offer classic steakhouse cuts like long-bone tomahawk ribeyes and bone-in cowboy steaks. And Snake River Farms is served by chefs who know beef, like Thomas Keller and Wolfgang Puck. And right now, Splendid Table listeners can get 10% off their order. Just go to www.snakeriverfarms.com and enter promo code SPLENDID at checkout. That's 10% off your order using code SPLENDID at checkout at www.snakeriverfarms.com. This is The Splendid Table, the show for curious cooks and eaters, and I'm your host, Francis Lamb. We're talking about the life of chef and writer Edna Lewis this hour, and there's this terrific book called Edna Lewis, At the Table with an American Original. It's a collection of stories and essays by all kinds of people who knew her, or were inspired by her, or who studied her, and truthfully, it was kind of the inspiration for our approach for the show. using different voices and each showing a sliver of what she meant to the world. Sarah Franklin is a writer and educator and was the person behind that book. And she joins us now. Hey, Sarah, thanks so much for coming in today. It's a pleasure, Francis. So I am really interested in how you got interested 
in the work of Edna Lewis. I think we're both in the same boat in that we never knew her personally. We never met her. That's right. But are both fascinated and inspired by her. So tell me how you got to be that way. I was introduced to her through Gourmet Magazine in 2008 when the editors published an entire issue devoted to the American South. Mm -hmm. And they built that issue around an essay that had been published posthumously written by Miss Edna Lewis called What is Southern? Mm -hmm. And in this essay, uh, Miss Lewis positioned the culture of the American South and the culture of the African American South in particular alongside the kind of workaday quotidian work of kitchens and also alongside music and literature and painting and other forms of art. Mm. And for me, it was this incredibly striking moment as someone who was interested in food and, and really desperately wanted to get involved in the work of food. It was a really key moment in sort of seeing what it was like to try to put food alongside these other bastions of culture mm-hmm. and to try to make sense of that. And I had never heard of Edna Lewis before that. I loved cookbooks. I loved cooking. Um, but I, I had no idea who she was. I didn't know much about the American South. I didn't come from there. I grew up in New York. And I sort of quickly realized I needed to know who she was. So I ordered some of her books and I read them and fell in love with her. And it was many years later that I was working with Edna Lewis's editor, Judith Jones, who is mm. the editor that also published Julia Child and Modern Jaffrey and, oh my gosh, the list goes on, Claudia Anne Rodin Frank. and, yes, the Diary of Anne <laughs> Frank, famously. A legend, yeah, legend um, of publishing. And really sort of the canon of American cookbook authors, or English writing, I should say, cookbook authors. And she published Edna Lewis's most famous book, The Taste of Country Cooking, in 1976. And in interviewing Judith Jones about her work, it became apparent to me that her book that she did with Miss Lewis was a real hinge point for her, Hmm. that she turned away from working primarily with authors who were writing about international cuisines and cultures to someone who was writing very explicitly about American cuisine and culture and a very particular region within America. And it, for me, it was the sort of stand up, uh, sort of snap to attention and pay attention moment in, in Judith Jones's career mm. of what it meant. In you think about the kind of mid 70s, what was going on politically in this country and the women's movement, uh, civil rights, the Vietnam War has come to an end. I mean, this really tremendous moment of conflict and confusion, I think, around our identity. Yeah. What it meant to publish a book from the perspective of an African-American woman about the American South, the rural American South, mm-hmm. and through the perspective of a home cook. Um, And it just, I think for many people who've come across that book, it was this really beautiful piece of writing. It was extremely political in its sensibility Mm. and sort of unflinchingly direct. Uh, It was making a statement, but it was not going to jam it down your throat. Um, And you needed to kind of be ready to receive it and her in your own time. And I think for a lot of people, that's come late many, many decades after its original publication. What do you mean by receive it in that, when you say that came late? Well... You know, it's really interesting. You can read The Taste of Country Cooking and love it as a cookbook and sort of leave it at that. The recipes are sure. wonderful. The prose is lyrical and beautiful. It writes of, of living on a farm in a farming community in a rural part of Virginia and sort of moving through the seasons, the work of foraging, of working in the fields, of putting food up in the kitchen, of eating alongside one another. Mm-hmm. But if you read more closely, if you look at the way the menus are organized, the sort of holidays that are being celebrated like Revival or Emancipation Day, mm. this is a work of African-American history in the American mm. South and of, of really giving dignity to that culture as its own entity in a lot of ways that's separate from white American culture. Mm-hmm. So I I wrote a story about Edna Lewis a number of years ago. And in my research for that story, I called you up and, and spoke with you and you inspired me to think of a lot of things that I, I didn't think of before. Mm-hmm. Including, I think, this idea of the taste of country cooking as being 
in a lot of ways of political work. Like you said, it's beautifully written and it's very easy, as uh, as a friend of mine put it, to think of Miss Lewis as, oh, just a sweet old lady. Yes. A sweet old lady writing about her time growing up in the country. But I was struck by how she positioned the life of black people, rural black people in the early 1900s. Black people who, her, her grandparents, who are the people who founded the community she grew up in, were enslaved. Mm-hmm. But they That's were freed right. slaves at one point. That's right. And I think if you think of that story, you'd imagine a story that was one of hardship and, you know, just trying to scrape by. And, and she writes about it like the most beautiful society, the most beautiful community. It was a life of beauty. Literally, children are singing in the book. Yes. Right? And I thought that was so powerful and so remarkable to say, hey, whatever stereotypes you have of us, mm-hmm. if you're not including the fact that we created this beautiful cuisine, your stereotypes are wrong. That's right. And that's a profoundly political thing. It's a massive corrective, I think, to so much of what had been written and what continues to be written, that the life of the American South and black culture within that large regional culture, large series of regional cultures, was one of just hardship and poverty. And that even though these may have been communities that were financially poor, their life was rich. And, And that it included bounty, you know, mm-hmm. if, if this community had nothing else, they always had food on their table and lots of it. Yeah. Um, and, and things that we think of sort of still as luxury foods, meats, cream, butter, um, foraged mushrooms from the forest. I mean, this is stuff that people pay top dollar for now. Yeah. And this was, you know, this was everyday food by virtue of the life they had created for themselves. Yeah. Like they're, they're literally making souffles in their kitchen. At home. Literally. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> and there's also this fierceness to it, too, that I think is so... Again, maybe subtle, and maybe I'm reading stuff into it that isn't that wasn't intended to be there. But there's a scene I remember, a small chapter called "Hog Killing," and she describes the tradition of you know when you slaughter the hogs in the fall and how they put up all the different parts. And there's this really incredible image of and they take the bladders out and they blow the bladders up like balloons and tie them, and those are their Christmas ornaments when they're dried. Like you know, several months later, mm-hmm. I'm like, can you imagine? like being that close to the guts, right? Literally. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. but also I remember reading it and the way she describes the hogs after they've been slaughtered. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds, I mean, the way she describes them being hanging quietly like statues. It's like that song, Strange Fruit, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like a lynch scene. And then I found later that when she was young, there was a black man in a nearby community to hers who was lynched after he had talked to a white woman and asked her to help them with their hog killing. Yeah. And I have no idea if that's what she intended to be a connection, but it's like now, you know, this many years hence, understanding history or hopefully understanding history as we do and it's all its realness. Um, and the reality of it, I, I can't help but think, but, you know, Miss Edna had those things in her mind, certainly. Um, I don't know if she wrote them in that scene, but. Yeah, I think that's what I'm alluding to with the sense that she was so unflinching in her prose, you know, that, that there was incredible frankness in what she presented you with, whether it was beautiful or difficult or often both at the same time, um, and that she was going to say it sort of quietly. And many people who knew her mm-hmm. spoke of her as being a fairly quiet woman. She often didn't say more than needed to be said, and sometimes yeah. she said nothing at all. But if she was going to open her mouth or put pen to paper, 
It was going to be with clarity. It was going to be concise. And she wasn't going to dart away from hard yeah. truths. Um, and then she was just going to sort of place it there and leave it there. And and you can receive it, you know, for the beautiful side or you can read it for the difficult side. Or if you're ready, you can try to find both, you yeah. know, the paradox in that. And I think therein lies her brilliance. Yeah. What an incredible, incredible life. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been my pleasure, Francis. Sarah Franklin is the editor of Edna Lewis at the Table with an American Original. She teaches food writing at NYU, and she's also working on a book on Judith Jones, Ms. Lewis's legendary editor. One of Edna Lewis's deepest friendships was with another chef, Scott Peacock. They bonded over a commitment to Southern food, they wrote a cookbook together, and for the last years of her life, lived together. So after talking to lots of people about Miss Lewis's reach in the world, we also wanted to know what it was like to be standing next to her in the kitchen. So hi, Scott. Great to talk with you. Uh, great to talk with you, Francis. So this is so fun to get to speak with you because we've been talking about Miss Lewis in all these different angles and all these different directions, but... I get to talk with you about cooking with her. So what was it like cooking with Edna Lewis? Uh, that's a great question. It was, um, well, I mean, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. And it was, it was really, it was similar, but yet utterly unlike cooking with anyone else. Um, mm. It could be very chatty and, Laughter filled, but for the most part, it was very quiet. But it was it was quiet because we were both so focused on what we were doing, and I think maybe some of our most present when we were cooking together. That's that's what it was like. I mean, the very first time I ever cooked with her, I was asked to be her assistant when she came for a Southern food dinner in Atlanta many many years ago. I was in my twenties, and she was seventy four. And I met her at the train station. She didn't fly at the time, didn't like to fly. Uh, and she traveled down from New York. And she had come down to do the breads and desserts for one of those dinners, you know, where you have a bunch of chefs cooking a different course and mm -hmm. um, raising money for the American Institute of Wine and Food and raising awareness about Southern food, which was uh, not taken very seriously at all at the time and was far, far, far from the popular cuisine that it is today. And so I was asked to be her assistant, which I was thrilled. The year before, she had come and, and cooked at a similar dinner, and I tried to assist her then and had been utterly unsuccessful, but had met her, uh, which was profound for me and of which she had absolutely no memory. <laughs> uh, but then this, the next year, I didn't even realize she was coming, and I got a phone call and um, was asked, would I like to be her assistant? And uh, I couldn't believe it. You know, I was literally almost jumping up and down and went to meet her at the train station and uh, looked all up and down the track, uh, the, the platform. And finally, as everyone else had cleared down at the far, far end of the track, I saw her uh, approaching and she was leaning forward and dragging this very large cardboard box. And uh. I went running down to her and <laughs> in, the, in the box she had pie dough and she knew there wouldn't be time to make pie dough for 100 pies when she 
got there. So she had made the pie dough in New York and frozen it and wrapped each individual batch in wax paper and aluminum foil. And (laughs) we got those into the car and got them secured in a refrigerator where they thawed perfectly, of course, by the next day when it was time to start working with that. And we went to the market and shopped for peaches and rhubarb and blackberries and pecans and other things that were needed. Um, And then the next day, we we set about cooking. And Mm -hmm. um, she went to me and said, you know, will you start rolling out the pie dough? And I was was a little intimidated, to say the least, and asked her to show me what she wanted. And later, she said to someone, she said, you know, I couldn't believe it. They gave me this child to roll out all the pie dough. (laughs) I was scared to death. (laughs) And so we baked. We made cobbler's and pies for the next two days and um, biscuits and cornbread. And then the dinner was that evening. But it was... It was quiet, but it was it was the most satisfying quiet, you know. And and so much was conveyed in the silence. And and I'll say that she, even before she really knew me, she she treated me. She never treated me like a student, you know. She was interested in what mm-hmm. I thought. It didn't have that tutorial quality. She was generous, and she loved cooking so much, and she loved that someone else was interested in it so much. And it was like an offering. Yeah, it it was, yeah. it was it was extraordinary, and so then after that first time, it was a few months later that once we'd started corresponding and talking and visiting, I'd been to New York to see her once, and she uh, called me and proposed that she come to Atlanta for a week, uh, and that we just cook just for ourselves, mm-hmm. and so we did for that entire week. You know, I would go and pick her up. She was staying with friends of mine and. You know, she would. I was ready to get right into the kitchen, and she would always say, "Have you had your coffee?" And I would be like, "Yes, I've had plenty of coffee." But she would want to go sit and have coffee, and we would go to a cafe or somewhere and have coffee for a very long time, I and mean, sometimes three hours. And then we would make our way to the kitchen, and we would cook, and we would cook late into the evening. And the first thing I ever I did ask her uh, because the very first thing I'd ever had that she made uh, that original dinner that I had tried to get into the kitchen to help with, but unsuccessfully. Uh, I was lucky enough to attend, and she had made turtle soup. Turtle soup, I mean, I was frankly a little squeamish. Sure. Um, it, it seemed kind of Granny Clampett to me a little bit. <laughs> uh, but uh, And I really had no idea what to imagine, but I was also very excited. I mean, it, it was, certainly was exotic. Um, but I was not at all prepared, you know, for what was delivered to the table. And it was this clear, clear amber consomme that had this cloud, you know, floating on the top. And the fragrance was unlike anything. It was so complex and yet so simple, but so nuanced. And and this cloud, this little dumpling that was floating on the top, that was the lightest thing you ever encountered. And uh, that had bits of turtle meat and tiny leaves of fresh thyme um, folded into it. And uh, it remains, you know, one of the most mysterious things that I ever, and delicious and memorable, and and meaningful now um, things I ever tasted, and um, that experience was so interesting because I, I'd assumed because it was so complex and nuanced and mysterious and ethereal and um, adjectives fail me, but it it I just assumed there must be a multitude of ingredients and secret steps and you know spells, um, <laughs> and instead I mean I went ahead and and I had gotten the turtle meat. And I was like, well, you know, what else do we need? And it was, you know, 
that was about it. <laughs> I mean, we needed some sherry and turtle and some onion. And um, we put it in a pot it's with a vast amount of water, I thought, and put it on very low heat. And it cooked and cooked and cooked and cooked. And I can remember tasting it after about three hours or so. And being, I didn't say this, of course, but I, I was disappointed. I mean, I thought it tasted like water. <laughs> and I thought, this is not it. She's not going to give me this recipe. She's not going to really teach me how to do this. You know? um, and so I, you know, I was like, what do you think? <laughs> and she said, oh, we just, you know, let's let it cook longer. And so we did. I mean, it cooked for hours. Uh, mm. And she would add a little salt and put the lid back on after we tasted. And this went on for a while. And I could begin to taste a little something after a few hours. But I was still suspicious. <laughs> uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, it became. And, and it was. It was exactly what I had tasted that night. And uh, it was extraordinary. And that was quite a lesson, you know. That was quite a lesson. Um, and then we made the dumplings. And, and then that really became a that, – that, that turtle soup remains very um, – it's symbolic, it's emblematic for me and, and very meaningful. So every time there was a special occasion or for her birthday or or someone special was coming to visit, I would always, you know, if they were really special, then they would warrant turtle soup, you know. Yeah. And that soup, the way you describe it, it's such a cooking of patience and a cooking of observation. And that's so much of what I think about when I think of Miss Lewis, not ever having eaten her food, only having read her writing so much of the taste of country cooking is about observation, patience with the world, patience with the seasons. Yeah. Patience and wonder. Um, her sense of wonder about things, you know, is what really always stands out to me. There was, um, there was a real sophistication there of someone who was brilliant and sensitive and artistic and observant and had great... Um, savvy and mm -hmm. you, you know in a degree of sophistication and at the same time there was always about her a girlish innocence that was so mm. attractive and so powerful really that she could see the moon and it was like she would get it was like she had never seen the moon before <laughs> and i i I feel so old and jaded and have all of my entire <laughs> life, you know. But I, I, I try to, to be like that. I want to be like that. And yeah. I guess in some ways I am like that. I mean, in, in the last week of her life, I mean, one of the last things I can remember was, was giving her um, pound cake at our kitchen table. And, you know, she gasped and said, beautiful. And um, Wow. What a gift. Yes. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you, Francis. Scott Peacock is a chef and teacher and the author, with Edna Lewis, of The Gift of Southern Cooking. And from that book, we have a recipe for cheese straws, and that's at SplendidTable.org. Coming up, El Simone from America's Test Kitchen with a recipe inspired by Miss Lewis, chicken and pastry. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM American Public Media. Our show is supported by Ben & Jerry's. Ben & Jerry's newest non-dairy frozen desserts are made with sunflower butter, a new twist on vegan euphoria. Everyone deserves a little ice cream, even people who avoid cream. 
For years, Ben & Jerry's has been making non-dairy frozen desserts based on almond milk, but their three newest non-dairy flavors, milk and cookies, mint chocolate cookie, and creme brulee cookie, are all made with sunflower butter. It's based on seeds, not nuts or soy, and it's really great how they nail the mouthfeel. It's creamy without that weird greasy vibe you sometimes get with other non-dairy ice creams. You add to that all the chunks and swirls you love from Ben & Jerry's, like salted caramel and brown sugar cookies and the creme brulee cookie flavor, and this gets serious. Check out the Ben & Jerry's Sunflower Butter lineup and the whole non-dairy family at benjerry.com. That's B-E-N-J-E-R-R-Y dot com. I'm Francis Lamb, and you're listening to The Splendid Table. You know... Edna Lewis was called the grand dame of Southern cooking so many times, the words are literally etched into her gravestone. So no one disputes that honor, but it did make us think, you know, she grew up with such a particular version of Southern cuisine in Central Virginia, and we wanted to know more about that region. So we called on the culinary historian Jessica Harris to fill us in. Hey, Jessica. Great to talk with you. It's lovely to be back, Francis. So I want to start actually um, by referencing a story which you probably know. But there's a story where William Faulkner walked into the restaurant where Edna Lewis was the chef at the time in New York City, Cafe Nicholson. Mm-hmm. And he ate her chocolate souffle and then asked her if she had learned to cook in Paris. And actually, Miss Edna's sister, Ruth, told me, no, she learned to make that souffle from our mother. So... So speaking of Miss Edna's mother, right, here's this woman who's the daughter of an enslaved man who was making these exquisite French souffles at home. So it really led me to think, like, can you tell us about the black food of central Virginia back then? Because that's not, I think, what a lot of people would have expected. Well, I think that there are a variety of things to remember. I don't necessarily know what Miss Edna's parents might have done. But never forget that African-Americans who were in service cooked, and they cooked not only African-American meals, but they cooked things that were eaten by the families for whom they were in, or to whom they were in service. Mm -hmm. Therefore, having a much wider culinary repertoire. And so did that breadth of cooking really mark this region? Uh, well, I think it, it did in a way. I mean, my mother's people are from Virginia. Mm. Um, not the same part of Virginia, I don't believe, as Miss Edna. I've never really looked that up. I probably should. But one of the things that I know about my grandmother is she just cooked a wide range of things. I mean, she was a, a rotisseuse, if there's such a term. You know, she could roast anything brilliantly, beautifully, she made preserves. Um, when I looked at some of Miss Edna's early cookbooks, they were things that sounded like my grandmother's food. But it also comes out of Virginia's culinary history. Oh, with Jefferson being this big Francophile, and is that what you mean? Well, I mean, I think that's certainly a part of it. But if you think of, you know, the, what do they call them in Virginia? The FFV, the First Families of Virginia. You know, if you think of all of those folks of that kind of emulation of European, of that desire to be patrician, of all of those kinds of things that were in effect, it really would be in effect on both sides of the racial divide, Mm. culinarily, anyhow. So what are some of the differences in the Southern food that Miss Edna grew up with? And 
what we, I think, more stereotypically think of as being Southern food? Well, I think they overlap. I think the food that Miss Edna grew up with, because she lived in an agricultural, seasonally inflected universe, was mm-hmm. very local. We talk about the kind of cooking that she did, which was very, for want of a better term, sophisticated. Mm-hmm. But I mean, sophisticated in its simplicity. The sophistication of Miss Edna's food is that it's simple and simply beautifully done. It is about the manner in which it is cooked. It is about the ingredients. It is about all of that. Mm-hmm. Now, that inflects in various different ways throughout the South. I'll never forget speaking with Leah Chase in New Orleans. And Mrs. Chase simply said, you know, Creoles are ticky about what they put in their pots. Okay? (laughs) They are. They're very, very picky about what goes into the various dishes. African Americans have not always had the ability to be as ticky or picky about what goes into the pots. Mm. And sometimes then that makes for a different kind of cooking to the degree that you have choice, to the degree that you have ability, to the degree that you have variations or things that you can grow, raise, all of that. The best of the best is what you serve. When those things aren't quite as universal as one might hope, then you get other kinds of food. Then you get other kinds of cooking. Then you get that stuff that I call hard scrabble. Mm -hmm. You know, my mother was Virginia. My father was upcountry Georgia. (laughs) That always played out at the dinner table. My dad was the chitlin man, the collard greens, the hog maws, all of those things. My mother was the, you know, roast pork with cracklins and, you know, stuff like that. So you get divergence. Mm, Right. But it's always the best of what you can serve. Absolutely. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Jessica. It's always a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for having me. That was Jessica B. Harris, author of many books, the latest called My Soul Looks Back. And fun fact about her, the National Museum of African American History and Culture actually called on her to define the different regions of black cooking for their exhibit and restaurant. Tony Tipton Martin is a hero of mine, and full disclosure, she's an author I work with, but before I knew her, I knew that she was working on a massive project, a book called The Jemima Code. It's a history of African-American cooking told through her research through 200 years of black cookbooks, and it paints this picture of a cuisine that's way more diverse and technical and sophisticated than the stereotypes of black food. So I knew that she must have a story about Miss Lewis, and we asked her to join us today. Hey, Tony. Great to have you here. Hey, Francis. Thanks for having me. So how, how did you meet Miss Edna? Well, you know, ours was a chance meeting many, many years ago when I was a young journalist at the L.A. Times, and I attended a conference that she was at. And I'm embarrassed to say that I did not know who she was, but um, she was surrounded by adoring fans who did know. Mm. And so I went over to introduce myself to her and find out what it was that made her so special. And it didn't take long for me to figure that out. 
What impressed you about her? Well, you know, I have to say that my initial reaction was clearly one of her physical stature, um, mm. sort of like going on that first blind date, right? You have that <laughs> attraction, and you, you don't know anything about the person. Um, but she was so incredibly beautiful and statuesque and so poised, intelligent, and clear-headed in, not to say that other African-American women aren't that. It's just that that's the impression that she leaves. Yeah, it's amazing because so many people describe her as being regal. And I found out years later that her middle name was, in fact, Regina, right? It's like she was fated to that. Wow. I don't know if I knew that. Yeah, it's wild. Well, you know, we get stuck sometimes in, in making physical observations, but I have to say that given the work that I've been doing and, and how it started in my desire to find an alternative view of African-American women in the food world, I don't guess that I can escape the fact that what she looked like made a huge impression on me as well, because she mm. was so contrary to the stereotype myth of um, an Angemama Mammy character uh, as being the representation of an African-American woman in the kitchen. And my goal with my all of my work is to use African-American cooks as an example of people who have been disparaged and spoken about prejudiciously, and um, they have so much that they can offer and share. Yeah. And you met her again later? I did. I met her again later. Um, by then, I had moved from Los Angeles to Cleveland to become the food editor there. And there was a dinner in Washington, D.C., that spotlighted African-American chefs. And I have a wonderful memory and photograph of being seated with Miss Lewis and Leah Chase. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, and, I, you know, it's just one of those things that I treasured for a long time. Um, and again, it was I still had not um, explored their work deeply um, because I was busy raising a family and and being food editor. But it was their presence that was so compelling and engaging. They invited you into their kitchens through their hearts and their words. And so I became even more curious to know more about both of them. But you got a letter from Miss Lewis at one point, right? I did. It was so important and such an amazing surprise for me because she had become so important to me in the ideas that I was starting to formulate about promoting African-American foodways and, and especially telling the stories of African-American cooks. And then along comes um, this handwritten letter in my uh, office inbox. And what she does that is so warm and loving is she explains right away with a timestamp that she's up in the middle of the night and that a conversation that she and I have had um, is disturbing her and she had to get up and write to me. Mm. She wanted to encourage me to pursue the story of African Americans in the food world and she closed with leave no stone unturned. Mm. She wanted me to know that there was value in what I was pursuing, and she gave me that validation and that encouragement to go forward and to press on, no matter how difficult the task might become. And um, she made me feel 
confident in the idea that, yes, African-American cooks needed to be elevated in the American food story. And so I got over feeling inadequate and insecure, um, which maybe she picked up on. And, and that's why she wrote <laughs> me this letter, which would make sense because that's the kind of writing she did in her books, as if she were standing with you side by side, walking mm. you through how to make a recipe and, and telling you where the pitfalls might be. And and so I hadn't really thought about it until just now, but I think that that letter to me was the kind of encouragement that she wrote um, in her cookbooks. Um, and yeah. it was to say, you can do this. Yeah. I'm with you. Incredible. It makes me a little weepy thinking about it. I understand. Totally. I can only imagine what that must feel like. Thank you so much, Tony. Well, thanks for having me and giving me a chance to um, speak about a woman who's important to me, but also important to us all. Tony Tipton Martin is the author of The Jemima Code, Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. You know, as a cook, you're pretty much guaranteed to learn something every time you pick up a book by Edna Lewis, even for the pros in America's Test Kitchen. So Sally Swift sat down with test cook Elle Simone to talk about one of their recipes inspired by her. Hey Elle, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me back. So we have been talking about the singular Edna Lewis all hour, and I am wondering, have you eaten many of her recipes? Certainly. Uh, my family made lots of Edna Lewis recipes and certainly some Edna Lewis-inspired recipes. And one of my favorites is chicken and pastry. So explain to me what chicken and pastry is, because I hear that and I think of like a pot pie. Chicken and pastry is really a soup. It's a hearty soup with a thick broth that contains these beautiful pastry bits that almost serve as like a dumpling. Okay, so tell us your process. So the first part of our process is making the dough for the pastry component. It's very simple. Flour, baking powder, a little salt and pepper. Uh, we combine it with milk and melted butter. We roll it out and we knead it to make sure there are no streaks in it. Put it in a bowl, cover it with plastic, set it aside. So baking powder, not baking soda. That's right. The baking powder helps to keep the dumplings intact so they don't disintegrate into the broth. Also, it keeps it from being chewy. It, it makes it tender. Okay. And at that point, we start to work on our broth. It's just a chicken broth, correct? It's, uh, is there any such thing as just a chicken broth? I don't <laughs> really can't really. <laughs> well, you know, we, we start with browning the chicken. When you have a soup or broth that has minimal ingredients, you have to do the very special things that really draw out the flavor. And so browning the chicken is the very first step. And then we take it out, we add some water, and we add onion and celery and we just let our stock go for about 25 minutes. And while that's happening, this is a good time to start working on your pastry dough. And so you roll it out, and the little je ne sais quoi that we pick up from <laughs> Edna Lewis is that we are also going to cut our dough into diamonds. I love that. That Isn't is it elegant. An, yes, beautiful, intentional move. It certainly is. Edna was a home cook to begin with. And I think like most good home cooks, she was very concerned about aesthetic. Like it was important to her for that to be beautiful. Also, when she was at Cafe Nicholson in the 50s in Manhattan, you know, she wanted something that would 
make her dishes stand out amongst the rest. And I think little steps like finessing, you know, pastries by cutting them in diamond shapes was like a perfect way to show who she was and how she cooked. Exactly. So at this point, our broth has been going uh, for about 25 minutes with the chicken in. You can take that pot off, remove the chicken and let it cool. And we're going to strain it, take the celery and onions out. But we've already extracted all the flavor from it we need. Um, And then add our pastry to the broth and, you know, just let it cook until it puffs up a little bit. And the pastry really kind of starts to give that starchy, you know, gift to the broth. Yeah. And it thickens it a little bit. And it just makes it so smooth and delicious. You know what I mean? Got it. Just that nice body that it adds to the broth. I have never had this. I am dying to taste it. It sounds like such home food to me. It's just oh. it sounds great. Thanks, Elle. Thank you, Sally. Talk to you soon. Elle Simone is a food stylist and test cook for America's Test Kitchen. Find that recipe for chicken and pastry at SplendidTable.org. And that is our show, our homage to Edna Lewis. Thank you for listening. And really, if you haven't, go out and get a copy of The Taste of Country Cooking. It's so good. It's the kind of book you want to read and then reread, which, you know, you don't really say very often about cookbooks. And before we go, let me tell you one more story. It's about when the great poet Nikki Giovanni met Edna Lewis. And they were chatting. And at some point, Miss Lewis asked Giovanni, you know, what her favorite thing to cook was. So Nikki goes, well, you know, you should try my quail. You know, she loved to cook. And she was like, I know a little something. And she describes how she makes this dish. And it was this great recipe that her mother taught her. She goes home a little while later as she asks her mother for a copy of that old quail recipe she clipped. She gets it out of the box, and sure enough, it's by Edna Lewis. You can listen to all of our podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our weekly email, Weeknight Kitchen, at splendidtable.org. Special thanks this week to filmmaker Phil Odebear and his documentary, In the Season, The Edna Lewis Story. And thank you for tuning in. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM, American Public Media.